You know, when I was growing up, uh, every day I had the same thing for lunch when I went to school. Sandwiches. The main sandwich that I had was a bologna sandwich with mustard on it. Day after day after day. And I got to, the, I got to summer and I thought, I don't want any more sandwiches. I'm tired of sandwiches, except, except grilled cheese. That's different. You can't, you can't take a grilled cheese sandwich to, lunch, uh, to school for lunch. Well, you could, but it sort of gets nasty after a while. Um, but, you know, if you think about sandwiches, what makes one sandwich different than another sandwich? Well, it's the ingredients, right? It's the stuff that it's made from. And even today, you know, you can get different kinds of bread, you know, pita bread and all this other kind of bread. Uh, but what makes a sandwich different from another is the ingredients. And uh, what makes, if you really want to get more basic than that, what makes a sandwich a sandwich at all? Well, it's the fact that you've got something that's squishing together something else, and you can hold it in your hand. It's all one unit. Otherwise, you can take the same ingredients, no matter what kind of sandwich it is, and just put it in a bowl, and it's a salad, right? Uh, put it on a plate, and it's just a meal. Uh, but when you put it together, when you've got something squished in between, trapped in between two other ingredients, then it becomes a sandwich. Well, there are sandwiches in the Bible, too. I don't know if you knew that, but there, there are sandwiches in the Bible. We're going to come across one today. And it's a story sandwich. And Here's what I mean by that. You've got two stories, but one of them is stuck right in between two other stories. And the author tells the story like that. He squishes this one story in between two other stories for a reason. And I'll give you an example. You, you all are pretty familiar, I'm sure, with the uh, story of Jesus going into the temple, right? Near the end of his life, the last week of his life, he goes into the temple. He sees that the money changers there are charging an obscene prophet just to make it where people could worship God. And it upsets Jesus. And what does he do? He takes their tables full of change, full of money, and he turns them over one after another. And, I mean, he causes a big scene. It's almost a riot. And he's, he's pretty livid. He's pretty upset. Now, they're upset, too. And so everyone, everyone's upset, and Jesus says what? This place is to be a house of prayer. But you've turned it in to a den of robbers. Well, that story actually is sandwiched in between another story. You see what happened before Jesus went into the temple that day? The Bible says that he was coming from Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. And he's walking toward Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree and he's hungry. And the fig tree had leaves on it. Which means... It should have fruit, too. So here's Jesus. He's hungry. He goes up to the fig tree, which should have fruit. And he looks at it, and it doesn't. This fig tree is a hypocrite. This fig tree says it has fruit because it has leaves, but it doesn't have any fruit. And Jesus curses the fig tree. And he says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat from you again. Goes into town sees a similar thing happening, only this time it's with money changers in the temple. He overturns the money changers' tables, tells them what he tells them, comes back out, going home later in the day. The disciples said to Jesus, Look, 
that fig tree that you cursed, it's withered now. And Jesus teaches them a very important lesson. And so, and you'll find that, you'll find that story sandwich in Mark's gospel. We've got one story that sort of gobbles up or it's, it's sort of surrounds another story. Well, today we're going to see another sandwich. And uh, you might think, well, this is sort of a neat little academic exercise, but it's really more than an academic exercise because there's a lesson that Mark wants to teach us in this. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, the question at hand is, who is Jesus? That's what Mark has really been dealing with this entire time. Who is this man, Jesus? And today we're, we're going to see that the opponents of Jesus got it wrong. They didn't really understand who Jesus was. And, and we can expect that, right? I mean, we sort of expect his opponents to get it wrong. They were wrong an awful lot. But here's the surprise today. Not only did the opponents get it wrong, but Jesus' own family got it wrong too. The people that were supposed to be closest to Jesus, they didn't even understand who he truly was. The issue is, for us, we better get it right. We better get it right. If the opponents of Christ get it wrong, back in that day or this day, and even the friends of Christ are prone to get it wrong, we need to make sure we don't miss this. We better get this right. Why? Because knowing who Jesus truly is can set the whole purpose of our lives on the right course. And not only the purpose of this life, but our eternal destiny as well. And so it's critically important that we get this right. And so Mark would have us, first of all, believe Jesus' message. In Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, here's what we read. And it's sort of a summary of Jesus' ministry to this point. Jesus withdrew with his, disciple, with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. What, what's Mark telling us? He's telling us that by this point in Jesus' ministry, even early on, Jesus is healing so many people, and he keeps preaching the word that everyone wants to go see Jesus. People are traveling over 90 miles on foot to go see Jesus. I mean, this is a big deal. And so people are making their way to see Jesus. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Verse 9 says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Why? Was it so he could just escape? No, I don't think so. I think Jesus wanted to be in a boat on the Sea of Galilee so he could do what he was called to do. What was he called to do? In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible says that Jesus came to preach this message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. That was his ministry. That's what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted to let people know that the kingdom of God, which had been long awaited from all of the prophets and the Old Testament uh, heroes of, of Scripture, they were waiting for God's kingdom to break forth into this world. And Jesus wanted to tell everybody, it's here. It's now. And he's standing before you today. And so that was his message. The time is fulfilled. 
Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And so this was a monumentous event. Jesus, the Son of God, has come. That was the message that he wanted to proclaim. Now, when he proclaimed the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God began to break forth, what also happened? It affected people's lives. It affected people's bodies. Not only did they hear the message, but many people were healed of physical diseases. You see, the kingdom of God is not just a spiritual kingdom, but it invades the physical world as well. And so people began to be healed. Well, now Jesus became known as that one who heals everybody. And so people were coming from Jerusalem, traveling 90 miles. People were coming from all over. What were they wanting? They wanted physical healing. And they were probably less interested in the message. Jesus was most interested in the message. The physical healing accompanied it. And so the crowd was so great that Jesus told his disciples, get a boat ready. And I think what Jesus wanted to do was get out on the water, away from the crowd, where they would be forced to listen to him, if they would even stay. And he could proclaim the message that God's kingdom has come through him. Verse 10 says, Why there were so many people? For he had healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Think about this. Men and women and children who had demonic possession in their lives. When these demons would see who Jesus was, they identified him and they said, You are the Son of God. And what did Jesus do? Verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus did not want his identity to be revealed by satanic powers. Rather, he wanted his identity to be revealed to those who would believe in him by the Spirit of God, not by the spirit of demons. And so Jesus calls us to understand this message today. Repent and believe in the good news. God has brought forth his kingdom in Jesus Christ. So then the next thing Jesus does, he calls together a group of imperfect leaders. There are all these people, and Jesus wants to gather together 12 of them to be his apostles. We read about this in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Think about this. Jesus is up on the mountain, and he either calls out their name one by one, or he sends a messenger, go get me Matthew, go get me Peter, go get me James, go get me John. And one by one, 12 men out of this throng of people come to the Lord. And they are going to be his apostles. Verse 14 says, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Why did Jesus call these 12 men? Number one, so that they would be with him. What's the benefit of that? Well, there's a benefit to Jesus. Jesus, I believe, desired fellowship with these men. He desired friends. He desired really to form a new family, a new community of faith. And these men would be the leader. But also, the benefit to these men would 
be this, that they would be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, wouldn't, they, they couldn't help but be affected by being with Christ. These regular guys. Who were they? He appointed 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. By the way, throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, Peter is always called Peter by Jesus. His given name was Simon. That's what he grew up being. His name was Simon. But Peter means rock or rocky. And Jesus, throughout the rest of his ministry, anytime he wanted to deal with Simon, he would say, hey, Rocky, come here. Rocky, come out on the lake, stand on the water with me. Rocky, what do you think? Who do you think I am? All the way through his ministry, Simon to Jesus was called Rocky. Except for one time. The one time that there's an exception to it is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When this man who's supposed to be a rock, Simon Peter, fell asleep. When Jesus needed his friends most to pray for him. Simon Peter fell asleep. And at that point, Jesus looked at Simon and didn't say, Hey, Rocky. He called him by his original name. Simon, could you not stay awake one hour? After that, he was called Rocky or Peter again. Simon was called given the name Peter. He was one of the twelve. Verse 17 tells us that James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Here's these two uh, apparently energetic, boastful, sort of, sort of loud guys, best of friends, James and John. These guys that are the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. There's Andrew and Philip. There's Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Who did Jesus call to be the leaders of his church? He called regular fishermen. He called the enemy of the fishermen, the tax collector. He called a revolutionary, Simon the zealot, what did zealots want to do? They wanted to kick Rome out. and They wanted to do it by force. And Jesus even called one who would not make it all the way. Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. There's a lesson for us that the leaders, even today, of God's church, they are not perfect. They are, they are, they are not perfect representations of God, not in, the, not in the least. These men that are the heroes of our faith had faults, and so do the leaders of God's church today. Our desire should be to follow the leaders that God has placed in His church, even though we recognize their imperfections. And then we get to the sandwich stories. Really the, the meat, if you will, of the message today. And the very first part is a story about Jesus' family. 
The second part is an interaction between Jesus and some scribes. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the outer part. We're going to read the part about Jesus' family. And we'll come back to the inner part in just a second. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, heard what? His family heard not only that there was a great crowd, but his family apparently heard that Jesus wasn't eating. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jump down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called him. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I want you to consider who these family members really were. And what was going on here? Who were they? The family members were supposed to be his closest friends. They were supposed to be the ones who cared the most about him. And in fact, they did. They were deeply concerned for him. And so they were friendly toward him. They cared very much about him. And yet they had a complaint. They really had an accusation. Their accusation was, he's insane. He's lost his mind. He spent a little bit too much time out in the wilderness without any food. He has absolutely lost his mind. He's gone insane. Today we use terms like paranoid and narcissistic. We use terms like schizophrenic, you know, very specific terms, clinical terms. But in that day, they were just thinking, he's not thinking right. He's lost his mind. That was their accusation. How did Jesus deal with this accusation coming from people that truly were concerned about him, that really cared about him? What did he do? He redefined what family was. That's how Jesus did it. He didn't rebuke them. He wasn't angry with them. I think he knew their heart. But they were wrong about him. They were wrong about Jesus. And so he redefined what family really is. He said true family is not just physical relationship. True family are those that do the will of God. Have you ever sensed that in your life where maybe there's people in your family, in your, in your immediate family or even your extended family, that they're hard to love. It's hard to get along with. But when you come into the church of God, there's a, there's a unity there. there, there is a, there's a commonality there. There's a closeness in spirit. And if you think about where you truly get your strength to go on day by day by day, it might not be your physical family. It may very well be that spiritual family that you rely on so much because they're the ones who are there for you when you hurt they're the ones that pray for you they're the ones that encourage you they're the ones that lift you up 
And so that's what Jesus is talking about. Who is my family? The one who does the will of God is my brother, is my sister, is my mother. And so it was a gentle rebuke to his own family. But they didn't quite understand him. And then in the middle of this story, we have another interaction. Still happening in the same place, in the house. And we read about it in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, think about it, these scribes traveled some 90 miles just to observe Jesus and to criticize Jesus, to gather evidence against Jesus, so that they could someday get rid of Jesus. We knew that they are, that's what they wanted to do. They came from Jerusalem. They were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, He casts out demons. And so they're looking at Jesus' ministry. And they're saying, It is satanic in nature. It is not from God. Verse 23, And He called them to Him. And said to them in parables. So apparently these guys are trying to influence the crowd. And Jesus went out of his way and said, come here. And he brought them in the house, apparently. And he's going to confront them in a very direct way. And he said to them in parables, verse 23, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Think about how the way Mark sets up these two stories. How Mark is describing the family and how Mark is describing the scribes. Who were the scribes? They were the enemies of Christ. They were the opponents of Christ. Did they care about Jesus? No. They weren't concerned in the least bit. In fact, they wanted to get rid of him. And what was their accusation? The family said he's insane. Their accusation was different. They said he's demon-possessed. He's possessed by Beelzebul. He's He's possessed by Satan. And Jesus responds with rebuke. The very first thing Jesus says is, how can this be? Let's take your case. Let's suppose for a second that what you're saying is true. Does it even hold up logically? How can Satan cast out Satan? How can a kingdom be divided against itself? How can a house be divided against itself? If Satan is divided against himself, he's going to fall. He's going to fail. How can Satan cast out Satan? And then Jesus says, No one can go into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. What's he saying? He's saying Satan is the strong man, right? Satan is the one who's greater than anyone here, according to you scribes, right? And no one 
can bind, no one can go into Satan's house and plunder his goods. What does that mean? Who are Satan's goods? It's people. It's you and me. It's the idea that Satan has trapped, Satan has captive millions and millions of people. They're blinded to the fact that they are captivated by him, that they are under his sway. And no one can go in and free them unless he first binds the strong man. Jesus is saying it would be ridiculous for Satan to captive, to make captive so many people and then send one of his demon-possessed humans to go free people. Jesus says that's ridiculous. I'm freeing people, I'm healing people, I'm setting people free from their demon possession and from their unbelief, and I'm bringing them to God. It's obvious that I'm not from Satan, Jesus says. I am from God, and not only is he from God, but Jesus is saying, I am God. Because nobody is stronger than Satan except God. Only God is stronger than Satan. And Jesus is saying to those scribes, think about it. Think about who I am. I am stronger than Satan. How do, how do you know? Because I'm binding Satan. And then Jesus says, be careful whom you accuse of being satanic. Because I am not satanic. I am God, Jesus says. And so you're very close, he says to the scribes, to committing an eternal sin. Jesus says, whoever commits the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit specifically is this. It is attributing the work of Jesus in the flesh to the work of Satan. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit specifically is not something that could ever be repeated today. It had to have happened when Jesus, the Son of God, was standing right before their very eyes. And Jesus is saying to them, be careful, because you are attributing satanic motives and a satanic origin to the very Son of God. And this is an eternal sin. That can never be forgiven. But Jesus gives us some good news right in the midst of this. What does he say about all other kinds of sin? He says, all other kinds of sin can be forgiven. You know what that means? That means that the pride in your heart can be forgiven. That means that the lust in your heart can be forgiven. That means that the wrong words that you say to someone, the hurt that you cause someone, the crime that you commit, even murder itself can be forgiven. Even taking the Lord's name in vain can be forgiven. If we will receive it. All other kinds of sins can be forgiven. Why? Because there would come a time when Jesus would die on the cross for all these other kinds of sins. What does he require of us? He requires of us that we believe. 
that we trust in Him, that we give our heart and we give our lives to Him, that we begin to follow Him. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And Jesus makes us a promise that we can become a part of His house. You see, have you ever, have you ever locked yourself out of your house? I mean, that's just one of the worst things ever, right? You're locked out of your house. And hopefully you had enough foresight to put that hidden key somewhere or to give a copy to a neighbor or something like that, right? But if you've ever locked yourself out of your house, it's just a pain and it's embarrassing. But what if somebody was in the house who could let you in? Someone could open the door. That'd be good, right? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've got a house too. I can let you in. And I'm opening the door for you. You see, if you receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers, then you can be a part of his house. I want you to think about the house that Jesus is talking about. The the house that he's in. This house is really a, a key to understanding this passage. Where is Jesus? He's in a house. The crowds are so thick, no one else can get in the house, including his family. His own family should be inside the house. That's what's proper with regard to hospitality ethic. The one who the party is for, he can bring his family in. But guess what? His family's outside the house according to verse 31. They couldn't even get in to see him. The family's outside the house. Spiritually, why were they outside? They were outside Jesus' house because they misunderstood who he was. They didn't get it. And then here come the scribes. They're outside the house too, causing problems. And Jesus says to them, do you think Satan has has a divided house? Jesus basically says he doesn't, and neither do I. Jesus has a house, he has a family, and it's undivided. Jesus invites us into his family to be a part of his house. You see, the house of Jesus is not locked. The house of Jesus has room for you. All you have to do is go through that open door. Jesus is on the inside, and he's opened the door for you. And he says, do you want a family who will love you, who will care for you, who will be your brother and your sister and your mother, greater than your physical family could ever be? You can be a part of my house. Jesus says, do you want to have a father who will be a perfect father, who will never, ever mistreat you, who will love you with all the tenderness that a father should have, who will always be there for you. He will always provide for you. Jesus says, come be a part of the house that I manage because I'll introduce you to a heavenly father who will always be what you need. You know, if you would be a disciple of Jesus, people might say the same thing about you that they said of Christ. They might say about you, oh, you're crazy. You follow some carpenter that died 2,000 years ago? Get with it, man, it's 2014. Man, that religion stuff, that's, that's, that's for old women. That religion stuff, that's for people on their deathbed. That religion stuff, that's not for you and me. You don't need that. People look at you and they may call you crazy. 
But you need to make up your mind. Who is Jesus to you? If he truly is who he said he is, then you've got a decision to make. Are you going to be a part of his house? Are you going to choose to be on the outside? Are you going to choose to live your own life? And let me tell you, if you would become a a disciple of Christ, if you'd begin to follow him, then guess what? You need to continue the mission that Jesus began. What was his mission? Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. That message has not changed. There are still millions, even billions of people on this earth who have not yet received that message. And it's our job to take that message to Leveland. It's our job to take that message to our world, to everyone around us. Why? Because Jesus' disciples carry on his mission.